good morning. So amen. Thanks so much, Thomas, um, for that uh, message there, uh, just on Act 6. We're going to be doing that a bit more often, just kind of having members of the Act 6 team kind of update us on how things are going um, on that front. Um, but thanks so much, Thomas. And um, we will gonna, we're going to continue here in Luke chapter 10 with our sermonian this morning. Uh, so please hop over to Luke chapter 10 and we will begin there. Um, you know, in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus tells one of the most popular parables um, that he ever tells. You know, we, we kind of talk about the parts of the Bible that even non-Christians know. And this is one of the stories that, you know, even non-Christians know. And um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think we even have a law in our country, the, the Good Samaritan Law, which was a plot point on one of my um, favorite shows, Seinfeld. So, <laughs> um, but uh, the, the idea that if you see someone in agony or someone hurting or someone in distress, you, you have to help them. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. I don't know if it's real or not, but it was in Seinfeld, so who knows? But anyway, um, a parable is a really important literary uh, and oral device. A parable only has power um, in its punchline. Um, that was extremely alliterative. I didn't mean to do that. A parable only has power in its punchline. Um, but it's true. It's kind of like a joke, right? And if you have to explain a parable, usually it loses its power. Um, a parable's power is usually in that, oh, whoa, you got me. You you caught me in my thinking, right? It's like, aha, kind of moment. Um, think about uh, Nathan's parable with David in um, in Samuel when he says, you know, uh, there was a man and he, he had a little baby lamb and the lamb, you know, t- was taken away by another man. And David's like, no, you should kill that man. And then Nathan's like, you are that man. And David's like, oh, wow, you got me. So a parable is meant to kind of catch us in our thinking. And so when you have to explain a parable, kind of loses it, right? Uh, it's almost like a joke. You know, it's kind of like, um, kind of like a joke. I'll give you an example of a joke for those of you that don't know a joke. So there's, there's a, a string and the string walks into a bar and the bartender says, hey, we don't serve strings here. So the string leaves, and he's kind of frustrated, but he kind of loosens himself up, kind of tassels his hair, ties himself up a little bit, goes back in, and the bartender says, hey, we don't serve strings here. Are you a string? And the string says, no, I'm afraid not. So that is an example of a joke. Now, if I have to explain the joke, right, it kind of loses a little bit of that punch, which is like he's afraid, you know, tied up in a knot kind of thing. Anyway, But what we're going to try to do today is try to really get a sense of what the parable of the Good Samaritan meant to the people who heard it. Even the title, by the way, kind of messes us up because the original parable didn't have a title, right? The title is given to biblical scholars. Scholars give it later after the the title is not from Jesus. So even the title kind of of, uh, affects the way we view it. But regardless, it might be good to kind of know the cultural setting that we're walking into when we hear the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, There we go, that'll work. So the title of my lesson this morning is The Limits of Love. The Limits of Love. And so any faithful Jew at this time would have been concerned with being saved, as most people are, being concerned with being saved. And so when you think about what it is to be saved, you you, you talk about, well, what are the greatest commandments, as we're going to see here really soon. And one of the, the, the kind of popular teachings that were kind of circulating around this time was from the book of Sirach, which is not in our Bibles. Um, it's intertestamental literature. So someone wrote it between the Old and New Testament, but it was still kind of revered as wisdom literature. 
And one of the things that was written on the limits of love is this, and you're going to flip when you see this. It says, when you do a good deed, make sure you know who is benefiting from it, that what you do will not be wasted. You will be repaid for any kindness you show to a devout person. If he doesn't repay you the most high will, no good ever comes to a person who gives comfort to the wicked. It is not a righteous act. Give to religious people, but don't help sinners. Do good to humble people, but don't give anything to those who are not devout. Don't give them food or they will use your kindness against you. Every good thing you do for such people will bring you twice as much trouble in return. And the big one here, my goodness, the Most High himself hates sinners and he will punish them. Give good, give to good people, but do not help sinners. So this is, this is a massive limit on what it means to love people, right? And so this was, this was a popular teaching at the time of Jesus. Like, okay, we should love, but only love Jews, only love people that are within our community, only love this label, this category of people. And before we get a little bit too aghast at this teaching, we go, oh my goodness, how could they ever do that? I think we have to realize too that we're not that removed from the same kind of thinking. I think a lot of times we put limits on who we love. And especially in the last year, I think because so much trouble, so much hardship has happened, we get wounded, we get hurt, and loving becomes harder. And so you begin to kind of pick and choose who you, who you love in some ways, you know? Um, and, oh, by the way, another verse, which is kind of crazy here, that, that, you know, it says, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. Obviously, pigs were unclean, the most unclean animal there is. And so this is also another teaching about what it is to be, uh, at the time of Jesus, to really kind of, what, what does a Samaritan mean when you hear a Samaritan? Samaritans were not considered to be Jews. They were considered to be traitors, half-breeds who left the covenant people, who left God's chosen to go marry non-Jews, right? So, and they also are, basically, they, the, the view from the Jews is that they quit on God, that they left um, the Jewish faith. And so this is what it is to kind of uh, be in the time of Jesus and to kind of think the way that they did. But I think about why do we kind of put limits on our love and the reality is, is that woundedness can come from compounded guilt, bitterness, and resentness. I think when resentment, I think when we get wounded as people, when we begin to kind of put limits on our love and we begin to kind of look for limits on our love. Part of that's not because we actually choose to, it's just that we're wounded and we have a lot of guilt. We have bitterness and we have resentment maybe toward people in the church, maybe toward failed relationships uh, maybe that woundedness comes from putting a lot of hope in a political party or a political leader that hasn't maybe gone as well as you thought or that hasn't maybe given the chance that you think he or she deserves. Maybe that woundedness comes from putting that kind of hope in a, in a romantic partner of some kind or your kids or financial security, you name it. But this year was a huge year. I was reading recently that last year had more job loss than any year since 1939 for America. I mean, this is a tough year, not to mention the pandemic, not to mention racial injustice. I mean, it's a tough year. Talk about a time to be wounded. Talk about a time to want to put limits on our love. And perhaps without further ado, we should go ahead and read um, here. Because the question that comes to Jesus comes from a man who is eager to put limits on love. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we'll begin here. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. 
What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? So the man looks to kind of figure out, who am I allowed to not love? <laughs> what can I get away with? Right? Um, what, what, what can I get away with in terms of love? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense, any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So as we Talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Talk about the limits of love. Right? We talked about what it is to be Samaritan. We talked about woundedness. You know, woundedness makes us self-absorbed. It makes us less attuned to the needs of those hurting around us. You know, if you ever find yourself talking about yourself a lot, it's, you know, probably because you're wounded in some way. You're, you're, you're unable to give to those hurting around you the way that you need to give to them. And this is a really powerful parable, one of Jesus's best, um, because there's a lot going on here that we don't necessarily understand. And the first is these people. Well, what's important about a priest? A priest is the best possible person to see if you're wounded. If you're on the side of the road and you're physically wounded and hurt and you're dying, the best person to see is a priest. Your heart is probably jumping out of your chest because you're like, this guy is going to help me. The second best person to probably see is a Levite, not quite a priest, but also a, a person in the, uh, basically the ministry, if you will, but in the, in the priestly temple in Jerusalem, they would have been in the priestly class. They would have been a person of high standing. But both these people do not cross to the other side of the road. Um, they actually avoid helping the hurting man. But it is the Samaritan who does cross to the other side of the road. And my first point uh, this morning, uh, after a quote by Blaise Pascal that I uh, wanted to mention real quick, is that when I see the blind and wretched state of man, when I see the whole universe in its dumbness and man left to himself with no light, as though lost in this corner of the universe without knowing who put him there, what he has come to do, what will become of him when he dies, I am moved to terror. Then these lost and wretched creatures look around to find some attractive objects to which they become addicted or attached. And my first point is the perspective of the victor. Now what Blaze is talking about here. Um, in his quote, is he's basically saying, when we enter into the world, if we don't find our purpose in God, we basically look to find attractive objects to which we can become attached or addicted to. And the first point is the perspective of the victor, because what's happening here is an incredible story of 
people not crossing the road when they could. There's a lot of reasons why they perhaps don't cross the road, right? That's my first question is, why didn't the priest and Levite cross? Um, Jesus doesn't really tell us. Um, and, and so some people have said, well, probably because a dead body is unclean. And they didn't want to cross the road and perhaps get unclean. They didn't want to perhaps uh, risk um, getting hurt. They didn't want to perhaps risk uh, defiling themselves. So they cared more about themselves and just kind of left the man alone. And the thing about priests and Levites is that they were the most privileged people in all of ancient Judean society. And it's actually kind of funny because even though they don't help the man, uh, it's you know, one commentator writes that priests and Levites were not used to being judged on performance. They were used to being judged on ancestry, right? And so for them, it's like, I don't really have to help this person. Um, but we don't really know the motive of why they don't help the man. Uh, we don't really know why they, they don't cross over to the other side of the road. Um, when we think about what it is to live in our society today, I think a lot of us struggle to cross to the other side of the road. And what I mean is you cross to the other side of the road is to kind of put yourself out there to be able to help somebody else. I think a lot of us, like Blaise Pascal said, we've become addicted or attracted to certain things in our world um, that we think will bring us joy and happiness, and we, and we label them. We live in a world kind of obsessed with labels, and sometimes we don't cross to the other side of the road because of a fear that we'll be labeled. If I do this thing, they might label me. And, and one of the big labels right now is politics, right? If I do this thing, will I be labeled a liberal? If I do this thing, will I be labeled a conservative? If I do this thing, will I be labeled a voter of a certain presidential candidate? If I do this thing, will I not be labeled a voter of a certain presidential candidate, right? Labels are kind of... They're, they matter and they're a big deal, but I think sometimes we don't, we don't do what we could to love others and to help others because we're afraid of how it will look and what it might mean. Um, and just like Pascal says, we've become addicted to these things and we begin to look to symbols in our society that are that kind of over uh, overcast and they kind of overwhelm our purpose here on earth as the children of God. You know, the Samaritan is driven by mercy, it says. What are the other two driven by? They're religious, um, they're privileged, but yet they do not act as a neighbor to the man. And, you know, one of the things about this, this passage that's, that's really amazing is how much that the Samaritan stands to lose by helping this person. You just read a couple verses about what people thought of Samaritans back then. You know how risky it would have been for the Samaritan to help the man on the side of the road? You know how bad it looks? He's bleeding, he's dying, he's on the verge of death, clinging to life, gasping for breath. And a Samaritan, you know the first thing that you think of when you hear the word Samaritan in that parable is, what in the world is a Samaritan doing in Jerusalem? They don't live here, they're not, they, don't, they shouldn't be here. It looks suspicious, right? Why is a Samaritan here? And then why is a Samaritan? And then think about the innkeeper. What is the innkeeper going to think as the Samaritan rides in with this dead Jew on his donkey? The innkeeper is going to think, what did you do? Did you hurt this person? Did, how are you involved? Is it your fault? 
The Samaritan is not in a privileged position in this story, and they stand to lose a lot by simply helping the man. Um, but the Samaritan does. And so in order to try to get the same thrust, um, in order to try to get the same thrust that we would get uh, if we were hearing uh, the parable for the first time, I'm going to attempt to tell a parable. Now, I have a caveat, is that I am not Jesus. So it's not going to be perfect, but I tried to get it as close as I could. Because I do think there is just too much important in this parable for us to miss. And so... There was a woman, and she was a fourth year at the University of Virginia, and she lived in the flats at the West Village off Main Street, you know, really nice kind of flats, apartments there off Main Street. And she was finishing up at UVA, and she was part of the College Democrats. And so she was very active in the College Democrats, it's, you know, a group she can join. And they would meet at the same place as the College uh, Republicans, in the same, same place that they would meet, which was at the, at the Carver Rec Center, the Jefferson School, you know, um, right there kind of next to that Wendy's. And so they would meet there. Uh, on Friday nights, uh, the same time as there was kind of like open gym at the basketball court there. And uh, it was pretty common to be there. And so one night she's walking home, you know, down just kind of connecting there to, to Main Street. But she decides to take a back road and she takes Brown Street, just kind of there behind the Carver Rec Center. And she decides to take the, the way home that way. And, and the worst thing in the world happens. And she's trying to kind of cross over the road. A car comes and it, and it hits her. And though it doesn't make a super loud noise, she is very severely injured. And it must have been a drunk driver because the car just keeps on going. Leaving her in a dark street on a Friday night. She's not been on the street before and she's, it's unfamiliar to her. She can't move. She can't get her phone. It went flying as she was hit and she needs help. And to her amazement and surprise and excitement, she sees a silhouette coming down the road. And as the silhouette gets closer, what are the odds a member of the College Democrats, someone that she's been in the same group with for years, someone who has the same ideals, the same passions about the same uh, uh, platforms that she cares about is walking down the street. But this person too is also perhaps not familiar with the neighborhood. I don't know, but for whatever reason, they do not help her as she lies there bleeding, dying, mangled by the car accident, gasping for breath. This person does not help. She begins to lose hope that no one's going to help her. She sees one more person coming down the road. This time, surely it'll be helpful. She recognizes this man to be a man from the college Republicans. He's coming down the road and she just, she just wants help. And so she's just, but, but to her, to her agony, uh, the same thing occurs that the man crosses to the other side of the road and does not help her. We don't know why. All we know is that she is about to die because no one will help her. She sees one more person coming down the road and she's just, she just wants somebody to please help her. She sees a, a, a figure walking down. She recognizes this person. It is a young black man, a young teenage black man who she recognizes from playing basketball at Carver Rec Center there on Friday nights. And the second he takes a step toward her, she is elated. The second that he moves across the road, perhaps with a hoodie on, she is over the moon excited about someone coming to help her. He runs over, he takes her, he calls, he calls an ambulance, but just decides to drive her to the hospital. He waits in the emergency room through the whole process. They can't get a hold of her family. They can't get a hold of next of kin. And he's there taking care of her. Even after months later, when she begins on the men, she, she needs help with hospital bills and he is there to help her all along the way. Now you might ask, why do, I, why do I tell that story? Why did I choose the people I chose? 
Because Jesus plays and Jesus Jesus plays with the biases of his day. Jesus doesn't just say, "Hey, Jew number one and Jew number two and Jew number three uh, are in this parable." He chooses certain people for a reason. He chooses a priest for a reason. He chooses a uh, a Levite for a reason, and he chooses a Samaritan for a reason. Jesus does something interesting. He does chooses a priest, right? Religious, let's just say full time ministry, right? Religious full time ministry church leader doesn't help. Chooses another person, religious full-time ministry region leader, right? Levite, doesn't help. It would make sense that Jesus then goes, nope, you know who's going to help? Just the average Joe the plumber, just the average run-of-the-mill Jew, part of the church, good old Christian participant. He says Samaritan. Somebody who ethnically and racially was pushed to the margins of society and was seen as less than um, because of their ethnicity and because of how they looked. Uh, and in the same way, what, what do we take from that? Why tell the parable? You know, why risk, you know, and, and there's a part of me that thought, hey, why even do it? You know, just say, hey, let's just love Jesus here. But the reality is, is that Jesus wants us to be aware of our prejudices. Jesus wants us to be aware of our biases. Uh, because the reality is, is at the end of the day, it's all about who crossed the road. And I think too often when we think about whether we should cross the road or not, we think, what kind of person is the person I'm helping? Do they deserve my help? Do they deserve my attention? And the reality is, is that instead of thinking about who they are, we need to focus more on who we are. Uh, too often we think, oh, we, we, something happens in our country and we, we are quick to go on social media. We are quick to get on and say how bad that thing was. And I'm not referring to anything in particular. I know we had a recent, obvious, awful situation on January 6th. I'm not referring to that in particular. In general, when something happens, it's easy to think, look at those bad people. I'm not going to help those bad people over there. But instead of being quick to label, instead of being quick to, to look at something and say, that's bad or good or label it, who cares? Who are you? What kind of person are you? And are you doing the compassionate thing? Because when you realize who you are, you're able, like the Samaritan, to do good even if you risk uh, your own safety, right? In the same way that the Samaritan risks his own safety, the young African-American man risks his own safety by helping this young woman. It doesn't look good, right, that he helps her and takes her to the hospital. He risks uh, looking bad, uh, looking like, were you part of this? Did you do something? Is it your fault? How are you involved? Right, but he still helps her anyway, the same way that the Samaritan helps this man. But to be honest, church, that is not the main point of this parable. And even as good as it is to say, let's all be good neighbors and let's all do the good thing. Let's all do the right thing and help those who are in need. It's not quite enough. This parable wants us to be aware of our racial biases, but that's not what the parable's about. This parable wants us to be aware uh, of our insider-outsider thinking, like people inside our group to love and the limits we set on love. The, group, the parable wants us to be aware of it, but it's not what the parable's about. And I'll tell you about what the parable is about. It's not about the perspective of the victor. It's about the perspective of the victim. And I'll tell you how I know, because Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? When asking the question and answering the question, Jesus says, which of these do you think was a neighbor, right? Who was a neighbor to the man? Who is the subject of the story? Who is the main character? Whose perspective is the story told from? It's not the Samaritan. It's the man who was mangled. It's the man who we know nothing about because the reality is we don't have to know anything about him. It doesn't matter 
that we know anything about him. And when you are looking at the parable from the perspective of the ditch, anyone is a welcomed neighbor. Jesus says you cannot put limits on love because when you are the victor, you put limits on love. When you are the victim, there is no limit on love because anyone you see walking down that street, every time that woman saw a silhouette walking down Brown Street, her heart jumped thinking, can you please help me? It didn't matter that they were from the college Republicans. It didn't matter that they were from the college Democrats. It didn't matter what they looked like or what they did. All she wanted was mercy. All she wanted was help. All she wanted was kindness. When you're looking up from the ditch, anyone is a welcome neighbor. That is the point of the story. That is the point of the parable. When you are a victor, when you are coming from a privileged position, you're able to say, who can I love? Who can I not love? Who can I kind of, you know, jip here out of getting compassion? And Jesus says, no, you're looking at it all the wrong way. I reject the premise of your question. When you are the victim, everyone's a neighbor. And that is the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is the point of what we're doing here is to be able to look at it from that perspective. You know, I've read this parable so many times. And I, you know what's funny is I always look at it from like, oh, be more like the Samaritan. That's just moralistic. Be, be a better person. You're not going to be able to be a better person, right? No, no. The world uses this parable because the world uses it moralistically, right? The world says, be a good person, be a better helper. Nope. That will only leave us drastically short of what Jesus is trying to say. He's simply saying, change your perspective. Change your perspective. You know, Jesus is the greatest neighbor. And Hebrews 4.14 says, For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to, to receive mercy and to find grace whenever we need help. You know, a lot of people think that the reason that the priest and Levite didn't cross the side of the road is because they didn't want to get unclean. What's actually the case is that they were required by law. Even priests were required by law to dispose or to deal with a dead body or a hurting body if they saw one. So it's not that the priest didn't want to get unclean. It's not that the Levite didn't want to risk being defiled. It's that they simply didn't care. They simply didn't care. And being saved, the question that the lawyer asks of Jesus is, how do I be saved? Jesus says, how do you be saved? It's not about being a priest. It's not about status. It's not about people looking at you and going, oh, you're so great. It's not about worldly status. It's about practically showing compassion for those that need it. No matter what you look like, how tall you are, where you come from, where you've been, none of that matters. It's, are you compassionate? And the labels the world throws out, who cares? Church, I think we let these labels of the world affect us way too much because what we, what we spend our time doing matters. If you're spending all your time on social media or watch, certain movies you watch matter. Certain media you watch matters. It changes your perspective to see the world in these labels. Instead of seeing the world through the eyes of the victim, the world through the eyes of those who need help. That is the point of the parable. Are we spending enough time letting the word affect our perspective? Or are you just are you spending two minutes with Jesus every day and then six hours with the worldly media? Are you spending 30 seconds with Jesus a day and then 10 hours 
podcasts and these things affect us and they stop us from being our what God has chosen us to be. Like Blaise Pascal said earlier, when we know our purpose, everything becomes clear. We stop trying to find attraction or addiction in these things and we live for God. And it becomes so clear and it becomes so easy and it becomes the point to change our perspective from the victor to the victim. And how do we do this practically? How do we make this happen practically? We gotta let his compassion be the fuel to our compassion. You know, Jesus is the greatest neighbor. Jesus decided, though he was really considered to be equal with God, having a perspective of heaven, Jesus changed his perspective just so that he can understand what it's like to be you. He can sympathize, just like we looked at in Hebrews 4. He can sympathize with you because he's seen what it means to be lonely. He's seen and felt what it means to be bitter and and have resentment toward lack of friendships. Jesus knows what it is to struggle with with temptation and sins that you don't think you could ever, ever quit. Jesus knows what it is to be labeled a political uh, usurper. He knows what it is to to be caught up in in the the pain and the death and and the, the destruction of a world where people are dying and his cousin is head cut off. And Jesus has been through that family pain and drama. He chose to change his perspective, not only to be there for us, but and not only to give us a great example of compassion, but so that he can die and be allow us to be able to live with this beautiful gift of grace that he's given us. We're going to fall short of being the perfect good Samaritan. (laughs) We're going to fall short of it, you know. But if we can constantly be aware of his compassion, we won't won't get compassion fatigue. We won't uh, let the world wound us so that we become selfish and self-absorbed. We'll be able to see his compassion for us and we'll be able to give compassion to those that need it practical compassion, like paying for a night in a hotel compassion, bandaging someone's wounds, practical, right? I mean, this is a practical kind of love that Jesus is trying to show us. And a great practical for this is that great, great sentence that you've probably heard before, help me understand your perspective. Help me understand your perspective. If we are going to show compassion, right, it's not telling someone what they need to do not telling, and sometimes maybe it is, but not most of the time. And especially when people are hurting. When people are hurting and wounded, they don't really want to hear as much what they need to do. They want just you to understand their perspective. There will be a time, there will be a day when we can jump back into the great challenging, right? And the, and the moving forward and the discipling of like intricate, uh, uh, you know, elenco and, and reproval and these things. And sure, those are needed sometimes, but for now, I think people just want to have you understand their perspective. I think that's what, and if the church could just do this, how great would it be? If before you posted something on Facebook about the way it is or the way that it needs to happen or how this is truth, maybe you called somebody and asked their perspective on it. Maybe you called somebody and asked their perspective on what you're about to say. Before we, we are quick to, quick to speak on issues that label, issues that destroy issues that will be our undoing as a church if we simply cannot show compassion. It is, a, it is a basic tenet of Christianity, a basic tenet of what it is to be like Christ. And I pray that if we simply just ask this question this week, and perhaps last week you called somebody, right, because of the reading plan, uh, to ask them how they're doing. 
incredible. Great, great, great stuff. Just begin that. How you doing? What's your perspective? And to always see the parable from the perspective of the victim. Godly compassion means seeing things from the perspective of the victim. I want to close out with a hymn uh, written by uh, John Wesley. Uh, and then we'll pray. It says, Fountain of life to all below, let thy salvation roll. Water replenish and overflow every believing soul. Into that happy number, Lord, us weary sinners take. Jesus, fulfill thy gracious word for thine own mercy's sake. Turn back our nature's rapid tide, and we shall flow to thee, while down the stream of time we glide to all eternity. The well of life to us thou art of joy and swelling flood. Wafted by thee with willing heart, we swift return to God. We soon shall reach the boundless sea into thy fullness fall. Be lost and swallowed up in thee, our God, our all in all. Let's go ahead and pray for the bread and the juice. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Will Portillo. And if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, visit us online at blueridge.church or connect with us on Facebook at Blue Ridge Church of Christ. Visit us on YouTube and subscribe for weekly sermons, encouraging news, and short devotionals. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.